Thank you, Jake. Wonderful to have student ministers here at Calvary who uh, contact with our kids all the time, helping them to know and love Jesus. And uh, imagine 100 high school students together, two buses, three vans, all the way to California for a, a week of discipleship. And then the seniors stay on longer, and uh, they have a great time together. Uh, but I love coming to church on Sunday morning. I'm so glad that you're here. Some of you missed last week on the spring forward. That's okay. We're glad you're back here. I uh, love having college students down in front and together uh, an audience of all generations together. We have a mission at Calvary. Our mission is to know Christ and to make him known in the world. We're praying that God builds up our church in the likeness of Jesus. We're a Christ-centered community of people who are trying to be fully devoted to loving God and loving others and uh, multiplying that community around, and I'm glad you're a part of it. I pray today, and uh, as I was thinking about preaching this week, that there would be three things that you would know about Jesus that would change your life, and, or at least anchor more deeply your life, things that you could trust about Jesus. And I'm um, conscious that we're working our way through the Gospel of Luke. We're really tracing the disciples with Jesus, and we are now in the last days of Jesus' life. We're going to be turning to Luke 22. If you have your Bible, you can open with me. In the last days of Jesus' life, the disciples have to be on edge a bit, but they don't fully know what's going on. And Jesus is trying hard to teach them certain things about himself that they would have as an anchor and a foundation for their life. So I would say to all of you today, I've been praying that you would have these same things about Jesus in your mind as an anchor for your life. And I'd ask the question to you, in what circumstance in your life are you most teachable and do you learn the most? Would you say that you learn quickly when things are going great for you? When you're on top of the world and everything's going swimmingly, is that a time that you're attuned to learn and believe and trust in God? For many of us, maybe we'd say yes. Or when things are a little disorienting and you're not sure what's going on, you're not sure what tomorrow holds, you're uncertain about your surroundings and things are not sure, is that a time that you're teachable? Or would you say with me, one of the times I'm most teachable is when my world falls apart and everything caves in and it feels like disaster in my world. I would say that's probably the time that I'm most likely to learn because I'm in trouble. And we're tracing the disciples' lives with Jesus and he's trying to communicate to them these final words of message to them. And the end is coming for Jesus. And there are three things I pray that you would have in your heart today that you know about Jesus and really believe. The first is that he is sovereign. And the second is that he is supreme over everything. And the third is that he lived his life as an example for us. These things all unfold in chapter 22. So if you're there in your Bible, let me begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to roll in a little bit today and 
move quickly through the narrative that I hope is familiar to you. But now the Feast of the Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. This is the scene and the setting. They want to be done with Jesus. And they have a conspirator with them. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered with the twelve. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray Jesus to them. They were glad, and they agreed to give him money. And so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. Behind the scenes, you can see that Judas is working in alignment with the chief priests who hated Jesus and wanted to put him to death. And he's going to be the betrayer for 30 pieces of silver. But it's all being orchestrated behind the scenes so that the crowds are not involved in the moment of his betrayal of Jesus so that they can take him into custody without the crowds causing a riot. That's all being set up. Do you think Jesus knows about it? Of course he does. I mean, think about this for a moment. The Lord is marching to Calvary. And he knows everything that's happening behind the scenes. And he would say, I came into this world for this purpose. But imagine the moments when Jesus is simply aware, and no one else is, that Judas is beginning to work his evil scheme. And he's culpable. And Jesus is going to go to the cross betrayed. He knows it fully. And yet he's looking at his disciples and saying, I love you. I will never leave you. This is encouragement to us, is it not? Your world may be falling apart. It may be bad for you, but I want you to see the sovereignty of Jesus. Look at verse 7 and watch another miracle of Jesus. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? Now watch verse 10. And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, Jerusalem, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. What do you see about Jesus there? Jesus is sovereign. Like he knows you're going to go to the city, you're going to see a man walking with a jar of water. And Jesus, in his omniscience and his control over all these events at the end of his life, sees that tells them, that's what you look for. You go into the house, you prepare the Passover there. 
I love that there's another miracle of Jesus knowing everything that there is to be known, telling his disciples, you can trust me when you get to the city. Here's what you look for. That's what you do. And how do they respond? Verse 13, they went, they found it just as he said, and they prepared the meal. Listen, if you know that Jesus is sovereign over every detail of our lives, what is the only right response we could have to him? Isn't it obedience? Isn't it simply to do what he says? Now, we would love for Jesus to say, tomorrow when you get up, I want you to go to school. When you get to school, I you're going to see somebody with a water bottle, and I want you to follow that. We, we wish we would have the details for our tomorrow the way they did here, but I simply want you to see that Jesus, um, in another picture, has all of this orchestrated. And we should love Jesus all the more when we think that what he was orchestrating was his own sacrificial death for us. And yet he worked it all together. I hope that when you leave today, one of the things that will be an anchor for your life is that Jesus Christ is sovereign over all the details of our life. Whether we can clearly see it or not, he is. He is working even when we can't see him working, he works all things together. He can see the future. And he told them they obeyed, they trusted in his sovereignty. And I hope that you will too. Now, secondly, I want you to trust in the superiority of Jesus. And for this, we're going to look at the next verses and explain a little bit more about the Passover. But in verse 14, we read, And when the hour came, the hour of the Passover, the hour of his death. When the hour came, he reclined at the table with his apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired, I have truly, I have desired earnestly to eat this Passover with you before I, everybody, before I suffer. I know what's coming, but I have desired with great desire to eat this meal with you. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, the Passover we should talk about for a moment. The Passover was a great, important feast for all of Israel. All Jewish men were expected to go to Jerusalem every year and observe the Passover, at least every other year. And it commemorated the deliverance of God, of His people in Egypt. You might remember in Exodus chapter 11 and 12, and you can read that. We won't take time to read it today. Uh, but there were thousands of pilgrims then who would come into Jerusalem every year. And so the city swelled with population. And if you remember the scene where we're reading in Jesus, Rome had occupied Jerusalem. And they were anxious about uprisings because Passover was a feast that celebrated God's deliverance of his people in Egypt. And I think they may have anticipated that the Jews believed the Messiah would come and deliver his people. 
And might the delivery of a Messiah come in association with the celebration of God's ancient delivery of his people in the land of Egypt? Probably so. That may explain why King Herod and Pontius Pilate were in Jerusalem instead of their respective cities of Tiberias and Caesarea. But during Passover, Jews would celebrate together and they would remove leaven from their house. Leaven was the yeast and they would remove it from their house to remember those who in ancient Exodus experience um, left their houses in haste and so they ate unleavened bread as they were leaving. That's why Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. But at the season of Passover, everybody took the leaven out of their house. And Jesus said, we need to clean the leaven out of our hearts. It's amazing that these are the people who perpetrated this crime against Jesus were the Pharisees who probably took the leaven out of their house, but not out of their hearts. So Passover was remembered as the exodus out of Egypt. But what you have happening here is a massive theological transition. And if you know the Bible then, and you think that in Exodus chapter 11, they would slaughter a lamb... After all the ten plagues that happened, they would slaughter a lamb and they would take the blood of the lamb and a branch of hyssop and they would dip the branch into the blood and then they would put out on the uh, cross beam of their house and the two doorways, they would sprinkle blood over that so that when the angel of death and judgment against Egypt came, if their house was covered with the blood of the sacrificed lamb, the angel would pass over that house and they would escape judgment. Right? Remember that? Some of you remember. If you don't, you'll have to catch up in Exodus chapter 11. But then that was a memorial from generation to generation that Israel celebrated the Passover where the sacrificed lamb would create the covering that would allow the judgment of God to pass over Israel. And what happens here in these words of Jesus is Jesus is inaugurating a new and superior commemoration of a greater delivery, not just the children of Israel out of Egypt, but the delivery by the Lamb of God for the sins of the world. And this is the end of Passover, as it were. All of us should remember that to be delivered from the judgment of God requires death and a sacrifice and a blood. So the lambs that were slain through all the history of Israel never really took away sins, but they covered over sins and they pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice that would come. God spared Israel because of a substitute lamb offered by a priest. But Jesus is saying, I desired to eat this last time. I won't eat it again until the kingdom. And I'm going to inaugurate a new celebration, a new commemoration. And Jesus replaces the Passover with the Lord's Supper so that it moves from the deliverance of Egypt to that of sins of all men. I will never eat this again. There will be a future kingdom. There will be a future feast but it won't point to the Passover anymore. 
it will point to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so Jesus is really saying, my death is not the end. There is a kingdom coming. Um, and here we are. This is Thursday. Think about it. Tomorrow it will all be over. There'll be no more temple worship. Jesus is going to be on the cross the next day. And what happens in the temple with the veil? It's torn in two from top to bottom. And the Holy of Holies, the very special place where the sacrifices were offered, is rendered open. And no more sacrifices will happen there. No more priests will do that. No more ritual or ceremony. Jesus say, I've desired to eat this Passover with you. It's the last one. I won't eat it again until the kingdom, until the future. And now he begins to change to something else. And so in verse 17, so he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I won't drink the fruit of the vine. There it is again until the kingdom of God comes. Verse 19, and he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he I'm sorry, he took the bread, verse 19, and when he broke it and gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. My body. The bread will remind you of my broken, pierced body, the symbol of death. It is given for you. If you underline that in your Bible, this is the substitutionary offering of Jesus bearing our own sins in his body. Do this in remembrance of me. We find in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that Paul then takes this up, and this becomes the new celebration of the new community of God's people, remembering his broken body on the cross. And likewise, verse 20, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you as the new covenant in my blood. Those of you who would make mental note, you, you would make mental note of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 that there was the promise of a new covenant that would contain the full forgiveness of sins and God placing his own being in our hearts. And Jesus is saying the celebration of Passover is being eclipsed by the superior offering of Jesus, not lambs without blemish, but the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Everybody said, oh, man. I mean, if you can appreciate what Jesus is doing with all of the old covenant and saying, I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then presenting this new celebration to be remembered. Um, the new covenant. Jesus saw beyond the cross to the kingdom that was coming, and he saw the crown. He saw beyond his own suffering and said there's glory to be coming. There would no longer be a Passover on God's calendar. Um, the next feast would be the kingdom feast, and we will feast together at his table. We will. Um, look at verse 30, not on the screen, uh, but he commends verse 28, his disciples, and he says, you are those who stayed with me in my trials, and I assigned to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes. 
I love that he's nurturing them and he's changing their their vision from Passover and ancient Israel to a new celebration of his death for them and saying, in the kingdom, we're going to eat together at the table. Jesus is superior. So could I just say to you, when you leave today, what if the thing that was in your mind is that there is no other offering for sin that needs to be given? Jesus paid it all. And our sins can be forgiven. And if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, I want you to understand that what he did is to show the superiority of his own sacrifice that whoever believes in him would never perish but have everlasting life. And then he gave the symbol of bread to eat and a cup to drink that we would always remember, do this in remembrance of him. We do that at Calvary once a month. Some of you say, well, why don't we do it every week? We could do it every week. But every time, Jesus didn't tell us how often to do it, but only as often as you do do it, do it with this in mind. I have eclipsed every other sacrifice. There now remains no more sacrifice for sin. Jesus is superior. Do you believe that? All right, you have a Savior who loves you. And the way he loved these disciples, we should say, and he loves us this way. They're confused. They're going to be disoriented. Their whole world's going to come crashing in, and they're going to be able to look back and say, wait a minute. He sovereignly carried us to to the Passover, and then he replaced the Passover with his own sacrifice. And you can see that verse 21, it says, while this is all happening, he says, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is at the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. You're underlining in your Bible, as it has been determined. By whom? Anybody? By God. This is the plan of God. As it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was doing this. Clearly, the disciples don't know that it's Judas. That's stunning. And frightening that you could be with someone whose heart was so deceitful that you couldn't even tell he was going to be the betrayer. And they all said, is it me? Is it I? It's not me, is it? And Jesus explains in the other Gospels that it's the one that he dips the morsel and gives to him, and that happened, and Judas was that one, and he went out, and even after he went out, they weren't sure why he went out. They thought maybe he went out to buy more food for the celebration. They weren't sure. That's a scary thought, that they didn't even know it was him, but Jesus did know it was him. Now, something quickly changes in this whole episode, and from a sense of, man, it's not me who's betraying you, is it? I don't know how the conversation went quickly to, well, maybe I do know. No, it's not me. I would never do that. I'm one of the strongest disciples that there is. And I will be with you forever. And probably, it might have been Peter, I don't know, but they began to have a conversation about, as embarrassing as it seems to look at at this moment, who is the greatest. Now, think about poor Jesus in this moment. This is sort of embarrassing, isn't it? That he's telling them, I'm going to give my life for you. 
and they begin to talk about which one of them is the greatest. Ouch. So we go on. A dispute arose among them, verse 24, as to which would be regarded as the greatest. This is not the first time the disciples argued about who would be the greatest. It happened in chapter 9 and verse 46. But they, they started talking in the presence of Jesus about which one of them was the, the most faithful disciple. Ugh. I get to be with all kinds of people. Um, I was with a group of pastors twice in the last two months. And whenever pastors get together uh, in groups of 20 or 40, there's always a little sniffing out around, uh, you know, well, what's your church like? Or, you know, there's just a tendency to say um, among pastors to compare. I've seen it. There's a culture in America today in the church that the greatest thing you could do is to tear down somebody who doesn't agree exactly with you. There is online a great culture of cancellation, even among Christians. I, I think this ongoing intramural sparring brings great shame to Jesus. There arose a dispute among the disciples about which one of them was the greatest. It's kind of grotesque in the moment that it's taking place. So Jesus is going to explain something and say, I'm going to give you an example that you can follow. And so he goes on, verse 25. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. This is the way the world operates. They exercise lordship. They're all about power. They're all about influence over other people. In fact, the word benefactor is the word energizer. We would use that today in language, say, well, they're an influencer. They're somebody who uh, thinks they're the source of everything. They make things happen. They're the, the source behind all things that come out good. Verse 26, but not so with you. I'd underline that. We're not like that. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? What's the answer to that question? Well, in, a, in an observation, somebody who is the guest of honor at the table is greater and one who serves is the lesser. And that would just be the way of social decorum you have a guest and a waiter. But Jesus turns it on its head. It is the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as one who serves. And Jesus gives an example. He is both the one who we can trust in his sovereignty. He's the one we can trust because he's the superior sacrifice. And he's the one who is the ultimate example of how to live. I am the one who serves among you. You know, when your primary interest is promoting yourself, it doesn't take much to start an argument. And that's what happened here among the disciples. And Jesus just simply stops and says, no, I'm here to be a server among you. And you remember what happened at this very moment at the upper room when they were together for this last Passover. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to the right with me to John chapter 13 and in a beautiful picture of the perfect example of Jesus in John chapter 13, this is John's account of what's happening 
at this last Passover. Jesus gathers them together. Verse 13 and verse 1 says, For the Passover he knew that his hour had come to depart from the world, to go back to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end, to the uttermost. To the highest extent, Jesus loved his disciples. And then, verse 2, during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water in a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Verse 6, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered, what I'm doing you don't understand, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. Never shall you wash my feet. It didn't feel right to Peter that Jesus would take up a towel and wash his feet. And verse 9 Simon said to him, Lord, if that's true, if you don't wash me, then wash my hands, wash everything, my hands, my head. And Jesus simply said, the one who is bathed needs not to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Now, spiritual lessons going on here. Jesus wants to wash their feet as the customary humble service to them in the moment of the supper. I am among you as one who serves, and he does it to them. They should have each done it to him, but the, he does it to them. And Simon says, no. Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you're not clean. Wash all of me. And Jesus just says this phrase. Uh, the one who is bathed only needs to wash. And you're all bathed. Well, not every one of you. For he knew the one who would betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus gives a spiritual lesson. When you're in Jesus, you're washed. Hey, everybody, is Jesus your Savior? You're washed. You're, you're forgiven. What must happen? Th there must be sort of daily cleansing. Maybe your feet need to be washed. Maybe, maybe you've sinned against the Lord this week and you just need to wash your hands. Let the Lord forgive you. But you're clean. You belong to Him. And Jesus is making a spiritual principle here that we should pay attention to. Verse 12, And when he washed their feet, put on his outer garments, he resumed his place, and he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? What do you think they said? They'd probably learned by now that they shouldn't answer questions like this because they often didn't really know. Do you know what I've done? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's. Verse 15, I've given you, here it is, an example. You should do as I've done. Truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor the messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, let's finish the line together. Blessed are you if you do them. Hey, this is a prescription for a blessed life. For all of us living in this day, whether your world is together, whether it's falling apart, whether you're not sure, you are blessed if you follow the example of Jesus. 
And that example is humble service to others. Jesus is showing us, I'm sovereign, you can trust me. I'm superior, I will forgive your sins. And I am a kind of lifestyle example. Blessed is your life if you follow me in humble service to one another. We need this in our day. We need Christians who are humble, not proud. Who are broken to say, I will meet the needs of the least of these. And as Jesus came into the world to be a servant, so our lives in 2023, in this city and this community and in this world, need people who say, I am taking up the towel where Jesus dropped it. And he called me to be a blessing to other people. And that's where a blessed life is, serving others. Here's the summary. Here's the phrase that Jesus said. Um, I have come to be among you as one who serves. That's why I came. And Mark put it this way. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that is why we exist. Let's pray together. Oh God, I pray you'll strengthen our hearts to believe that you are who you say you are. You are the sovereign one. I pray for anybody who came in today unsure about whether you know their circumstance. Will you just assure to them that you know their circumstance?